Welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. Today we had a great discussion with my friend Susanna Muntz, who is a classmate of mine at St. Stephen's University. And uh, we talked to Susanna about um, this idea of indigenization of theology. It was really blew my mind a lot. Of, I mean, she has she's so passionate about this uh, idea of, of taking the industrialization idea out of theology, which is, you know, based on assembly line, making sure you get everything the same everywhere around the world. You know, there's just one correct interpretation <laughs> idea. And how do you make uh, the teachings of Jesus um, meaningful to individual cultures and individual peoples around the world based on their culture and their time period and their um, practices. It was, it was really great. What did you think about it, Maggie? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing that it's really a timeless idea because just as we are like our relationships as humans, they change over time and depending where we live and how old we are and the season of life we're in. So does um, how we understand faith in our, you know, time and day and season and all of that. I think my favorite part of the conversation, which I actually feel like I, as I was listening, I had a conversation in my head that I didn't get out in the podcast, but she was talking about how the assembly line is so sterile so that it works in all times of the year. You take out the complexities and the changes and it really works against having seasons. And I think that our faith has seasons as well. We hear about, uh, the, the valleys and the high places of our, of our faith and just how we are in life and to ignore what we learn and what can feel like the winter of our faith, um, really doesn't allow us to truly appreciate the springtime, um, mm -hmm. or the fall, you know, when there is so much fruit to be had. And so I just thought that was just really interesting that, you know, it made me think about when someone is in a winter time or a low place in their faith, the church often turns to them and says, well, you don't have enough faith. You're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. But the ideas that we're talking about with indigenization of faith really allow for someone to just be where they are and to know yeah. that there is a, that there is something to be learned and that it can be as well for the greater good of the community. Right. And as spiritual directors, uh, it, it is, isn't it our job or our privilege really to, um, to just let the person be who they are, where they are, when they are, I mean, all, you know, all the, all the things, but, and let them come to the, whatever meaning and truth works for them in that season of their life. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. part of the journey. Right. You know, and uh, um, so, so there you have it. Spiritual directors, we are way ahead of the curve in <laughs> <laughs> all of this. That's right. <laughs> Today, we're talking with my friend Susanna Munts, who is a friend of mine from class. We are both students at St. Stephen's University. And Susanna lives in Toronto, which is the traditional land of the Haudenosaunee. She lives with a housemate and a number of plants. As a consultant and coach, she helps people and workplaces discover how to thrive in the midst of complexity, asking what would happen if work didn't suck? 
That's a question I would like to know the answer to, actually. Don't we all? Don't we all? Yes. Yes. So thank you for being with us today, Susanna. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Chris and I have been talking quite a bit about this episode, like leading up to it. And he he just thinks the world of you. And so I'm just so excited to have this conversation today. Susanna, I would like for you to talk to us a little bit about your background um, in the church, if you grew up in the church or just any, uh, you know, whatever your background is and kind of your process and progress to get you where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Man, thanks so much for having me here. I I love an opportunity to be in really good conversation. It's been great, Christopher, to be around the, the school table with you. And the truth is, I'm still very much in the middle of, of discovering and, and learning. So whatever we talk about today, just put an asterisk of like, we're all learning. Mm-hmm. We're yes. still figuring this out. <laughs> yep. Um, so I grew up in a, in a really small town, it's called Bracebridge and it had about, um, 8,000 people, or that was my version of a small town. And we drove to Gravenhurst, which is the town nearby because we went to a closed brethren meeting. Um, so you can hear in the, in the title that it was closed Mm -hmm. and it was brethren. Um, you know, the, the intriguing thing though, is I look back on some of the the services that we attended. And um, when you showed up, we would just sit in silence for quite a long time. And and sort of, I think, waiting for the sacred to move among us. And then, of course, it could only be men. But one man would stand up and say, I was thinking about this scripture. And then another man would stand up and say, oh, it reminds me of this scripture. And what if we sang this song? So, you know, apart from the pesky, like only men can speak, there are there are things that I'm really appreciative. I I did not grow up, other than it being men, I didn't grow up with like the singular man who knew all the Bible answers. There was a, a sense that like more than one person could speak to this. And uh, the idea of the of the community gathering, and we actually had a like communion in the middle, um, and it smelled like bread every time we walked in. You know, as you as we entered this room, it, it smelled like a meal. Uh, and then we would always take communion together. So I'm really these days I'm quite grateful for a more uh, almost contemplative approach to a Sunday morning service. Um, that said, um, when I was about 12, my parents decided that we would leave the meeting for a, for a variety of reasons. One of which being that they did not want to have like the children in the neighborhood come in for Sunday school. And so my parents' convictions were, we need to be able to welcome more people in. So I saw from my parents, a profound ethic of hospitality, of an ethic of, of truly welcoming who, whomever was in the neighborhood. And I saw them actually count the cost for believing in that so deeply that they would leave a community that they were really rooted in. Um, so then we moved to a Baptist church, which I thought was the most liberal thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness, there's wow. a piano and like, I don't have to wear a head covering. And there's a woman wearing pants. This is a whole new world. Where have I come to? Anyways, after that, I became a bit of a, like a denominational mutt. I kind of, I moved where the people I wanted to be with were rather than following a singular sort of doctrinal thread. Um, so I've, I've worked at a, um, a Mennonite church for a while as the, um, global outreach pastor and, um, the youth and young adults pastor, um, I've attended a um, Christian Missionary Alliance church. Um, so just sort of in high school, I went to a Pentecostal church. So tried a bunch of things. I would say 
um, in my 20s, I did the Ignatian exercises and so was really introduced to the, the contemplative approach. And then at the same time, I was working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which develops um, youth and students as disciples of Christ and as leaders. And so okay. we were learning a lot about um, inner healing prayer and, and just saw God do a lot of things. So I'm quite, it's been quite a journey. And these days, uh, though, I, I feel like I'm looking once again at the, the framework of Christianity with hoping to do that with some rigor. Uh, and to say, what of this, what of this is a path to life? And what of this actually really diminishes the self and diminishes God? Um, so um, those are the questions that I'm asking in my faith right now. And I hope it's a sign of maturity that as I get older, <laughs> I can be increasingly actually grateful for what I've received. It feels a little bit like Richard Rohr's like um, accept and transcend. So just because I'm grateful for something doesn't mean, mean that I need to approve of all of it or even replicate it uh, today. So that's, that's some of the, the spiritual thread. Um, again, uh, I had parents who had a really high hospitality ethic. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. They have kids. So I'm an auntie and that is a wonderful role to have. I'm really grateful for them. They are uh, 15, 14, 13, 12, and nine going on 30. And it's just, it's <laughs> a, a delight to be with them all. Yeah. I love do they that. live near, do they live close to you? Uh, they're about like two and a half or three hours away. So close enough to kind of visit on the weekend. Yeah. 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 That's great. Um, I love the, the phrase denominational mutt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really love that you said that you were like kind of following the people and not necessarily doctrine. And so then you were exposed to so many different types of doctrine and uh, practices. And, uh, and uh, so I'm curious, kind of how was that experience for you in, mm-hmm. in figuring out who mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. and where, mm-hmm. you know, and what you believe as it is evolving still? It's such a good question. I think I need to, for those who are familiar with the Enneagram, I am a seven. On the one hand, I think there is something about my personality that is given to exploration and widening and an expansive sense that like, there's got to be more, there's got to be other perspectives, even as I really love this one and, and want to dig in and commit. Um, I, I also kind of I just have a disposition towards the world that assumes like, yeah, there's probably other things too. Um, and so let's, let's see what they are. And I don't, I don't know where this came from. Often we'll get into this a little bit. Often when you have two things that are present, we tend to think of them as being antagonistic towards one another. Um, Whereas my approach has often been like, okay, well, how might they work together? When, when might you need this approach in this context and when might you need it in another? And so there just was something in, in my personality. I actually, I think my parents just demonstrated in their own lives a welcome of all kinds of people, truly. Like we had just all kinds of different people in our home. And so I think that that like, uh, person first orientation. Uh, and then let's, let's welcome whomever it is. And so, um, maybe I think of a theology a little bit like that. Like, how can I welcome that theology as a guest? It, it's not a permanent resident. I get to decide, you know, what, what becomes permanent or not, or how long it stays for. And, 
Uh, that's even a little bit too self-determining. I do think it's it's the community that holds those things, but um, you know that that sense of like, okay, let's let's welcome this, let's pay attention to this, let's learn this, and see see again, does it lead us? Uh, into more compassion? Does it lead us into more wisdom? Do we find a path of life here? Or does this lead us into more fear? Um, I think these days, there's a lot of questions that I have about like, what of the, what of the faith seeks to make the self and the, the person less than human? And, uh, you know, that gets us to like, you know, like, basically, we're, we're terrible, awful worms. We're talking about Augustine, who is like the human is just like a piece of garbage. That's, that's probably an unfair treatment of Augustine. I'm sorry, Augustine, I will welcome you as a guest. You can, <laughs> you can sit at my table and talk to me. Um, but I do think there were some, there's some really damaging frameworks where we, um, we don't know how to honor the self and that actually the self is essential for honoring God. You. We are not fully able to honor the image of God that we carry if we cannot acknowledge and recognize the self and and who we are. So uh, those are some of the questions. I think that that's um, what's led me um, kind of around the world. And it's what has led me to, I think, I think a posture of curiosity to say, like, I'm going to assume I don't know this person's story. I don't know all that's happening here. Let's ask some more questions and and figure out what's happening. Susanna, that is so good. That posture of curiosity is something that Christopher and I, as spiritual directors, um, we seek to uh, hold a space of curiosity first. Uh, well, and love and all the things, but curiosity is how we can show love to another person. That's right. Because it says, right. I really do care about who you are and I want to know you. Um, and then also I think curiosity, mm. true curiosity, mm. not checking a box. Let me ask you questions, mm-hmm. rolling my eyes mm-hmm. so that I can get to me talking kind of curiosity, but true. I don't ever need to share my opinion. Kind of curiosity mm-hmm. is how you build a relationship with somebody. Mm-hmm. And then that relationship is where you can start to have a dialogue and you can not necessarily have to come with the, uh, at first, you know, that um, before we hit record, Susanna, you and I were talking about our approach to how we talk to people about new things and uh, you kind of have to come in softly. And, but the more relationship you have over time, the less you have to worry about your approach because you already mm. have trust mm. with each other. That's so good. I I mean, there's so much these days that especially, you know, we all know the term like deconstruction, but so often we're thinking about our relationship to an idea. What, what happens when we define ourselves in relationship to simply a statement or an idea? We become an idea too. It's, it's easier to simply just tear it apart and, I think as you're saying, like we, we are formed, our identities are shaped in connection to people and relationships. Um, our, our professor, Christopher and I, Christopher and I have a professor who would say like, you can't have a friendship with the universe. It's faceless and nameless, right? There's a, you can't relate. Now there are ways in which I would say like Christ is cosmic and universal, transcendent beyond understanding. That is, that is all true. But then what I find so curious about Jesus is that Jesus chose to show up like as a, as a being, as a body, you know, and that 
with a face and a lap that kids could come and sit on and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And all of a sudden you're not just relating to an idea anymore. You are truly figuring out how to relate to a a person. Um, And I, I think that's our challenge. How do we, well, I mean, that's where we're going to get to. I think that's what indigenization does. That's the core of that concept. Um, you know, I grew up in the Baptist church and this phrase, personal relationship with Jesus was central mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. But it's not really what they mm-hmm. meant. You know, mm-hmm. what, I think <laughs> what they really what they really meant was was, you know, intellectual consent to our set of doctrines. Yeah. And that yeah. is how, you know whether or not you're in a good relationship mm-hmm. with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and so our, you know, our, our entire identity is wrapped up mm-hmm. in whether or not we know the mm-hmm. right things or agree with the right things. Mm-hmm. And then not just our identity now, but our eternal identity, our eternal um, you know, location where we're going to end up in eternity is based on, do I actually agree with the right things? And, and then putting them into practice is less important, mm-hmm. but believing them is most mm-hmm. important. You know? mm-hmm. So that, and then when people go through the deconstruction process, then it really is just, it's like deconstructing my own identity because it's all based on what I believed. Um, but through that process, at least for me, and I think probably Maggie would agree, that process of getting rid of beliefs that were not healthy really in, kind of moved them out of the way to help me to introduce myself to the person mm-hmm. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so, yeah. Um, and yeah. in that you get a relationship, truly a relationship with Jesus, but also a new relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, yeah. and we've talked about this on the podcast several times that, you know, John Calvin, and I think it, I think it actually started with Augustine, but I'm not totally sure. Augustine, however you pronounce it, tomato, tomato. But, um, but John Calvin says it's like the first line in the institutes is you can't know God without knowing yourself. You can't know yourself without knowing God. And uh, so, yeah, the, we are entering into a relationship with the God of the universe, but also ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, why do you think Christ so often asks, what do you want me to do for you? There's so much self-awareness required. And and people would always say like, oh, Jesus already knows the answer. And I'm like, yeah, but he's also not a jerk, right? Like he's not just, he's not just trying to set you up for something like, well, I already know, like, I'll just right. sit back here bored. You know, I, I just, I think that that's genuine. Jesus is asking of you, you know, like, let's be curious about you together. Um, I, I would also say I've been really, uh, Christopher, you, we were talking about this the other day as well. The, the difference between like personal and private or personal and individual. And I, I think some of my, I'm, some of my experiences with the, the world church have helped me realize how individualized faith is. Um, in in the West, you know, it when they when we say personal, we often mean very private. Um, nobody else gets to see or say. I mean, the pastor will tell me what to think, but uh, but but it it truly is just like a contract between between me and God. And I think that's the thing that um, undermines uh, some of the expressions of faith, both practiced among the community and offered to the wider community. We don't view it as, as inherently communal. 
and I think it undermines a humility. If it's, if, if belief is communally held, there is no one person who believes it best. You, you can't say like, I'm the best believer. <laughs> I, I know it the most right. Yeah. You know, there, there's a, a, a humility that says like, we, we hold this together. We are discovering this together. Um, Pete Rollins would talk about like the way you believe rather than what you believe. And I would agree that, that the, the way of believing, I think the, um, many of the scriptures speak about a communal approach to belief. So it's both yeah. personal in that it's not impersonal. It's it's not that it doesn't have to do with the person, um, but it's not, it's also communal. So how do we hold the personal and the communal together? And it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but w- the way that you talked about your brother in church, that it was very, like that was your first experience yes. into faith, like actual community where everybody gets to share their experience and it's all valid. Which I'm, I mean, not everybody, you know, depending yeah, I, on, yep. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> you totally. know, depending on, uh, yeah. your, uh, gender identity, <laughs> I'm sure that is, yeah. you know. Yeah. Susanna, I was uh, in a house church for eight years and that was very similar. Um, but I mean, women could actually talk and we had a lot of women who were very vocal and, and I loved to listen to what they had to say because it was, it was a viewpoint that I obviously couldn't bring, but, um. We, we had a lot of commu- communal discussions about whatever the scripture is that we were talking about of the day. And, um, and you know, everybody had their own ideas about what it meant, uh, how it played out in their lives. And mm-hmm. we didn't mm-hmm. have to come to, um, we didn't have to come to an agreement at the end or consensus mm-hmm. that, uh-huh. okay, uh-huh. so we've agreed that this is really what it means. But everyone's uh, ideas were important and valued. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, what a novel concept. <laughs> what? <Seriously>. Wow. <laughs> we don't have yeah. to all agree and cancel each other out if we don't agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wow. Right. <laughs> yep. oh, yeah. Blowing so, my mind here, Chris. Susanna. <laughs> you know, it, it makes me think about um, the word um, discernment, uh, which I, I feel like is a is a something we're kind of under practice at. We, we might even be good at like learning and by which learning, I mean like um, consuming information, right? Like we're just, we just take in in a transactional way. Like there's that singular person, often a white dude, like telling us like, this is what the scripture means. So you like ingest the information and how often we leave services. I, I just was talking with a number of friends where they were like, it's such a good service. Oh, tell me why. Well, I learned something new. Ah, okay. Interesting. It's the truth is it's great to learn new things. It's great to learn about the history of the church or the context of the scriptures. And yet there's such a, again, this Western bent towards the rational that I, I've, we have come to feel like we're most alive when we got a new piece of information. Uh, In contrast, Christopher, what it sounds like you're talking about is that the, the community was learning how to discern something together, which is even different than agreement or saying like, we will all do the right thing, but to, to look intently and carefully and have it be shaped together. There's so much complexity out there where there isn't a singular binary answer. There's not, there's often not a yes or a no, but if we only know how to take in information in a like, is this right? Is this wrong? who said it? Oh, they said it. Then I believe it. They, you know, 
we are, I think we're under practice at some of the very things we need to engage what it means to be a human. Yeah. That's so good. What would you say, Susanna, does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. So I would, I would probably start with the idea of um, humans contain the sacred image that when uh, that as God, as a, a community of love, let's just, let's work with that as the current definition of God. So God as a community of love uh, then decides to create something in, in God's image. God decided that would be people. And there were, there was like two, you know, in that story, there's like, there's two genders and, and we're meant for work and we're meant for connection. And so I think there's something about being human that first of all is primarily defined in relationship. And that secondly is about a purpose um, in the world of, of helping the other flourish. Like our goal, our, um, we're made to exert effort towards that. This, this is my question about like, what if work didn't suck? So (laughs) I think like work is actually meant to energize us and an effort that helps others flourish and self flourish is meant to be quite meaningful and renewing and restoring. There's no amount of like candles and baths that can make up for like a lack of purpose and meaning at work. But you know what also crushes people? Business, <laughs> like the, 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 the drive for the almighty dollar. So for me, I'd say being human is about connection, about work, and about storytelling, that we are making meaning together through narrative, through stories, and um, that you can, you can hold a lot. You can hold a lot of the calamity and the terror and the ambiguity of life when you have some of those when you have those things, when you have connection, when you have work to do, something meaningful to offer the world that contributes to beauty or truth or justice, shout out to my girl, Simone Bay, um, or, and, and that you're in a community that makes meaning with you. It's not, it's not the community that makes right or wrong. It's the community that makes meaning. And, and that takes effort and it's kind of uncomfortable, right? People, we prefer right or wrong. It's a little bit more... Um, it's clear how we can measure up. And especially if you're a person like me that always wants to be like, you know, like gold star (laughs) student, we, we prefer that over uh, some of the work of, of making meaning together. And that meaning is localized to the person in the situation. And that gets us to the topic. Let's talk about that, please. Oh, (laughs) wonderful. Elegantly done. Um, you had brought up in one of our classes, you were, I don't even remember what the overall topic was we were talking about, but each of us were sharing something. And when you talked, you said something, you brought up the term indigenization of theology and um, how, and you kind of contrasted that with um, an industrial mindset or orthodoxy and, um, you know, and, and I love the, you, you said, you know, it's kind of like, you know, eating locally, what is, what is, what grows right here, right now in this season that I'm in, and that's what I'll eat. And instead of shipping it in from, you know, across the globe. Mm -hmm. um, um, But I want, I want to read the little blurb you sent to me uh, about um, kind of what this topic kind of means. And you said, basically, we've, we've been so afraid of syncretism, 
and you know the syncretism would you tell us what you think syncretism is before i go on oh sure man <laughs> how long do i have i'm just all about talking about syncretism <laughs> okay um syncretism actually used to be a good term it was when the cretans worked together the cretans synced up to fight a, a common enemy and so actually one of our church fathers erasmus uses syncretism as a positive way of being you you gather together to face a common enemy however um in in the enlightenment and then in the reformation people would say oh they're trying to blend things like calvinism and armenianism they are inherently opposed that is syncretism syncretism is a danger to orthodoxy so at one point in time friends the church felt like syncretism was a good thing Um, but when there were all of the arguments about who had the correct doctrine, who had the correct orthodoxy, then those orthodoxies became antagonistic. And if you tried to blend, if you tried to find a way to move forward, connected to one another, you were then accused of syncretism. Mm, Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because in my mind, when I hear, when you first were like, oh, we'll come together to fight a common enemy and that church fathers, it was a good thing. I was like, well, at the time they were like, you know, Rome was the enemy and uh, people that weren't converting to Christianity were the enemy. And then later down the road, it was Islam. And it was, you know, I mean, right. Just right. Yeah. Well, and, and, that's and now true. it's, that's and now it's the Democrats <laughs> yeah. or now it's the Republicans or whatever. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. It just reminded me, have you heard of Alexander John Shia? Oh, I haven't. You, you who know is who he is. Um, he's, he's um author and speaker and spiritual director that, um, he has he has an, a podcast with Rob Bell where he's talking about how the Christmas story has been morphed from uh, when the Christians um, borrowed a lot from the, the Celts, the Celtic Absolutely. people. And so it was really cool. So that's syncretism. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah, that's right. And we still we still live with all of that today, which is, you know, which that's is great. Right. Yeah. I, so anyway, what you were you were saying that we've been so afraid of that syncretism today um, that we've defaulted to a colonial industrial mindset that seeks to make truth a disembodied set of universal ideas. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? I I wrote that? Great. Yes, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes. Um, So I'm borrowing largely from the work of Jay Matenga. He is Maori from New Zealand. And he is working currently with the World Evangelical um, Alliance as their director of missiology. And so he was, um, somebody asked him like about the future of mission. And he just said, the future of mission is indigenization. That's what we need to have happen. And then he started to contrast that to uh, the industrialist sort of mindset. So actually, I want to talk first about those two words. So um, indigenous truly does mean um from the land or of the land. It's it's um, people and realities that are rooted in a particular geography and place and time. You're, you're attentive to creation around you and land around you. In contrast, industrialization literally means of our labor. So in contrast to of our land, something that sprouts up organically, you have industrialization, which features and centers our labor, our work, our business. Um, it's, it's driven by the economy. It's driven by efficiency. It's um, driven by um, 
a, a sense of wanting to accrue wealth and the concept of, of even ownership. And that, that likely there is in the industrialized world, um, ownership is of primary importance. In the indigenized world, when you talk to communities that pay more attention to land or within Canada, Ray Aldred would talk about the Cree people being treaty people. In that context, the question is not ownership. The question is guardianship, which is about uh, land and space um, and direction shared by people. And your primary question is, how can I ensure the thriving and the flourishing of this land where ownership is usually about like, how can I get the most money (laughs) out of this property? How can I Mm -hmm. kind of extract the minerals from it? How can I like leverage? So you're, you're really asking, how can I thrive through wealth? rather than how can we thrive? That's the, so you have these two different concepts. And I think that often we are expressing faith ideas. It's not that we're not meant to listen to other voices. It's, it's that we we're trying to take the application of a truth from another context and then just like pilot it in or something like that. It's, Okay, it's the difference of eating a mango in Canada and eating a mango in Guatemala. Yes, they are both (laughs) mangoes, but they taste wildly different. Mm -hmm. Really, really different. And actually, you can't... You can't replicate the growth of mangoes in Canada. And and in a a similar way, I think we try to take... um, Particularly the practices and the approaches to faith. And we... um, we suck all the life out of it. We suck all the juice out of it because we, we've really just taken it from a, a different people who've applied it in a, in a particular context instead of saying, uh, so I, I would use this language, that the person of Jesus in the midst of us, uh, the person who, is, who embodies way and truth and life with, with this person, transcendent, a mystery, with this person in the midst of us, who is, who is around us? Who are the people here? And, and what does our community need? What, what's true in our community? And so we're asking questions about what is the way forward? What's the truth here? What is life-giving here? But I can, I can tell that when you say that, it just sounds like relativism and syncretism and that you lose everything. Um, so I think that the invitation, though, is to understand the ways in which if... If God is intent in calling forth the human image in people and renewing us in the image of our creator, we, we have to know who we are in this context, in this space. Uh, what does it mean um, for the, the Cree people to speak their language, um, to use drums in a worship ceremony? What about a sweat lodge? Um, and that those things have arisen from that culture. And what does it mean to say, ah, how can we indigenize faith here and even approaches to faith here that would honor culture and seek to have understanding and access to the person of Jesus and to wisdom through some of these, through some of these pathways? So I would say my teachers have truly been, you know, people like Ray Aldred or Randy Woodley, and I'm, I'm probably not even quoting them that well but they are i think they're really challenging the the global church community the global um people of faith who follow christ 
Um, and, and there are people of faith who we should learn from that are, would not follow, call themselves Jesus followers. Bonhoeffer, you know, wanted to meet Gandhi and, you know, we have a tradition of, of learning from others, but, um, instead of a, a monocentric reality for Christianity, there is a, it's, it's called a polycentric reality, multiple Mm -hmm. centers where each of these places in their time and in their sit, in their space, center not only the person of Christ, but they center the local. Who are the people that have been here? Mm-hmm. What language do they speak? What are their practices? Um, and, and then together, as you acknowledge, who is here? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? Then you craft a, a practice that involves, I would say, discernment. <laughs> what mm-hmm. is good? What is life-giving? Um, that, uh, that creates a pathway forward for the kingdom of God coming. That's so good. I'm reading a book right now called The Land is Not Empty, Following Jesus in Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery. Yes. And um, this author, uh, her her name is Sarah Augustine, and she is uh, Native American. Um, One of the lines that's jumped out at me from that book, which is just what you're talking about, is she says, each people is entitled to bring its own Old Testament, in quotes, or, or the stories of its people to the mandate of Jesus and interpret that mandate of Jesus within their own stories and within their own cultures. And that that's exactly what you're saying. Mm, mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. I think we've, I think we've felt like it's just enough to say, Oh, we'll center Jesus or we'll center the scriptures as if Jesus and even the interpretation of the scriptures don't contain within them a uh, cultural mm. perspective. And so um, just, I would really agree with that. Richard Twist would say um, that a biblically valid way of dealing with the subject of syncretism is to view it as a normative stage in the process of spiritual and cultural transformation, not as a fixed end Mm -hmm. state. Industrialization is very concerned with product and efficiency. Get there as quickly as possible. It's assembly line. Get there as quickly as possible. The product is the point. And that you drive everything towards it and you better get to that product as quickly as possible. But what Richard Twist is saying, like, ah, if we view this, if we view faith as a process of being made into the image of Christ, you know, being renewed in the image of our creator, learning how to be truly human, participating in the kingdom of God, if it's a process, then we don't have to look at, well, one initial phase and expression as, first of all, the final expression the ultimate expression, which I think is actually the sin of the West is we feel like we've nailed it. We're, mm-hmm. yeah, we're certain we got it. We got it down. We're just tweaking some things, you know, we're just trying to figure out like, should we care about the poor or not? But otherwise we've got like, <laughs> we've got our doctrine, like pretty nailed down. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, we don't see that example in the scriptures. There's so much language that is about assurance of relationship with Jesus <laughs> But it's not certainty about doctrine. That's just not how it goes. And so if syncretism is an outsider view of insider worship, the question always becomes who gets to call something syncretistic or not? And then Hmm. even if it is, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right, like the insider should be the one to say whether it's syncretistic or not. 
that's the person that needs to be able to say like, oh, for this season, for this time, we're going to practice it this way. But as the spirit is alive among us, as the community changes, so too will our approach change. Um, you know, we, we see that even in, um, goodness, let's talk about, let's talk about indigenization as the temple. So God having, inviting the Israelites to set up a temple and have kings, that is God giving permission actually to syncretism. Kings were not God's idea. Kings were the idea of the Israelites were like, we want a king. And so God's like, okay, all, all right. Actually, in my grace and in my mercy, I, I'm not just going to be like, that's bad. The end product is I'm your king. God is saying like, okay, in order to help you understand who I am, let's practice this in an indigenized way. And let's talk about what it means to have a temple and a priest system. But even that needed to change. It was, you see this process even in the Israelites of a, oh, you know, there is a, let's say instead of maturing a, like a wholeness or a fullness. So, you know, there is the wholeness um, that you can come to actually requires that the Israelites don't need a king. The wholeness that they were coming to meant that they didn't need a temple. There was direct access to God. Um, and actually what Jesus was trying to say is like, now you need to tear down that temple. You need to like, there is something else here. So again, so this idea of instead of product, it's process. Industrialization says product, temple, yeah. king, Bible, all that kind of stuff. Indigenization says it's process. It's people that you go with. And actually that um, syncretism is a, a helpful marker along the way that people are actually really internalizing the truth of Christ present to them, not as a fixed state, but as a, um, a growing state. That's so, um, it's reminding me of, uh, this book that I read about evangelism, which I know is not what we're talking about, but it's the, uh, but just let me get <laughs> sure. to the, um, the metaphor here. Yeah. So, um, there's a difference between like when people think of evangelism, they think of people, everybody going into a stadium and basically everybody, like they get to the gospel message and invite people to accept Jesus and like, and it's done, you know, and then you move on and then they get the next stadium full of people, et cetera. Um, and I had experiences like that where I would just have people come up to me and knew I wasn't a Christian and just say, immediately, um, you know, Hey, do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and savior? I'm like, you don't know anything about me. And no, I don't, if this is who Jesus is, I don't want to be like you, you know? And then I met uh, a woman who became a mentor to me and she never told me she was a Christian. Not at first, you know, I, I knew because she was, you know, she had Bible quotes around her office and stuff. So I, I, I knew, but she didn't have to like tell me. And there was just something different about her. And over the course of two years, we became friends and I would ask questions and uh, over the course, again, of two years, this very long process, I finally said, okay, I think I want to like, be like this, you know? And mm -hmm. then, and mm -hmm. so I've been a Christian 13 years and I'm still growing and my understanding of how Jesus and I can be in a relationship is still evolving. Is that a kind of like the same idea of like, meta, is that metaphor similar to process versus like get to the end goal. Yeah, I think, oh man, I think you're getting at a couple of things. So it's process versus the end goal. And um, I would say that we are tempted to make spiritual hierarchies that 
con- the conversion yeah. moment is right. the peak moment. It's the hi- like in the hierarchy of faith experiences, conversion is the top one, the best one. That that again comes from an industrialist worldview that needs to rank and rate everything. There's not enough space for right. it all to exist together. It has to be put into a hierarchy. Now, here's what I would say. Uh, I would say um, moments of uh, like of really like focused and new and renewed allegiance to Christ are quite significant. So the, I think we don't, I'm not trying to diminish the moment of conversion. I just would also say that what I see in the scriptures is that it's, you know, Jesus, when he talks to the disciples, doesn't say, go make converts of all the world. He says, go make disciples. It's this, again, it's process oriented, which will include in it, great moments Mm -hmm. of conversion. But the truth is, I feel like I'm in a moment of conversion even today. Yep. So I, you know, when I was four, I was afraid of hell and I wanted Jesus to rescue me. That was for me as a four year old. Okay. That was, you know, significant. There was something happening there where I was changing some perspective and asking for help. If I look at it in the best possible way, you know, like, okay, all right. But it, it changes, it changes over time. And I actually realized like, Oh man, I need to like, if I'm going to have allegiance to Jesus, I need to have way more allegiance to this idea that um, God cares for and loves and is among Mm -hmm. the poor, not just me, like serving the poor, me as the, like, I am wealthy. I will give you money. You know, like, we're not just talking about charity. It's, it's about like, uh, association. And so uh, I, I would say there's points in my life where I was converted to a wider and more whole expression of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. So that, I think you're right. It's, it's about process and it's about not taking one moment as like the pinnacle moment, or I think we also choose that moment because we can measure it. I've heard this story that there was like an, an evangelist and someone was saying like, how can you measure success? And the way you measure it is like how many conversions happened. So in a drive to uh, shape an identity that is based on performance, um, you know, then, then we need to create ways of measurement that really reduce these moments and their significance to something that we can count. So it, it does matter. It does count if you will, but in counting it, we actually either elevate it too high or reduce the experience. Mm. And that's some of the, that's some of the danger now. Okay. Here's the challenge is that, I mean, scripture has all kinds of imagery around mm-hmm. fruit and fruitfulness. So please hear me. I'm, I'm not just about like, Oh, who cares? There's, you know, <laughs> It doesn't matter, you know, like what, whether you do something, it's just a different kind of question. And I think what I like again is industrialism assembly line does not care about the seasons. In fact, the seasons are a liability to the assembly line. Mm. If you think about like the creation of cars, you have a sterile environment that if you're talking about productivity, the sterile environment is optimal. Mm -hmm you reduce any complexity, you reduce any liabilities. And so I think we try to recreate that with people. Like how do we create the, like a sterile environment where faith and discipleship becomes like, just like only, or simply memorize these verses. Memorization can be great, but only like memorize the verse, then, then do the right thing. And when you do that in this sterile environment, then it all works out and you're saved, but we do Mm -hmm. not live in a sterile environment. We live 
in an environment that is marked by seasons where some fruit grows mm, way yeah. better in the spring and others are really coming into fruition in the fall, you know, like, and we're, we're, um, we're so disconnected again from natural rhythms of land and earth. And I think we're so bent on discipleship models that are highly mm, mechanistic. Yes, yes. We want it to be like an assembly line. And so we just, we move towards the transaction. Teaching doesn't have to be transactional. Good pedagogy can really mm-hmm. make it quite like um, transformative, but often it, it's reduced to a, a simple transaction of information. Um, here are the things that you do um, and then you've nailed it. But then people are, are in the world and don't know how to love a neighbor, truly. Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't know how to love my neighbor Mm -hmm. who, you know, I have neighbors next door. They're like big, like TikTokers. (laughs) So they're always making like videos, uh, you know, on their lawn and in their driveway. I'm always trying to like to photobomb them. It's like a secret (laughs) joy. But I was, I was thinking like, okay, like I'm a 44 year old woman. They're like, I think in their early twenties and they're like on TikTok all the time. Like, okay, now what do I do? Where's the memory verse about like... (laughs) No, no, talking to people that make TikTok videos. It doesn't exist. So, right, if I just learned it in this, you know, sterile vacuum, I don't know how to apply it. So I love that indigenization is always like, who is here? What is here? We're going to know it as best as we can. And and we're not going to know it best as we can just to simply sit back then and make judgments about like, good, bad, good, mm-hmm, bad, mm-hmm. good, bad. But to say like, oh, like what? And and why? And what is the desire behind this? And, and how can I hear what, you know, what someone is, is really longing for, you know, like all of this, like 15 seconds of fame business. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I actually think partly this is a way that these guys who are South Asian connect with the wider South Asian community. There's a diaspora reality right now, you know? So I'm like, okay, can I see this? Not just as like uh, frivolous and egocentric, although they're, they're, we likely are, well, we're all egocentric, but to say like, Oh, what I'm, what I'm actually watching is like young men trying to make sense of the fact that they're in a whole new context. They want to be connected. They want to belong. They have stories to tell. There's even some creativity there, you know? So, okay. So then what would it mean to, to be a a person of the kingdom of God um, and, and love that neighbor? Yeah. No. And then there's, you know, there's like the 65 year old woman who's across the street. What does it mean to love that neighbor? And what does it mean that we all live together? That is a more complex picture. It's actually more complicated than even some of our like summer mission go over to that other <laughs> <Right> country. <up. laughs> we almost know how to do that a little bit better than like have an indigenized expression of the kingdom of God coming among my neighborhood. Because then I'm actually part of the system. There is a power in being the outsider. We have to, and especially if you're the Western outsider, there's a lot of power. Yes. Okay, so that was kind of, I don't, what was even the original I, question? Yeah. But truly, like. That, that's great. And, you know, you were talking about power. And there was this qu- a quote from the Matenga um, article you sent me that said, yeah. uh, centering the local is not about empowering them. To empower, you give power yes. to. It is not ours as Correct. outsiders to give. Rather than empower, we need to take our power out of the equation to create space for local initiatives to emerge. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, I would have actually used the word empowerment a great deal. I think even in the like international development community for a long time, there was, it was a good hearted intention to talk about empowering others. Uh, but even baked into that concept is, oh, you don't have power. I do have it. It's mine to give. And actually there is power in being the giver. We, I think we're reticent to, to acknowledge that because we only want to see it as being generous or humble <laughs> and, and it might very well be, but let's live in a world where we can hold complexity and say, yeah, we can have a desire to be generous and also still be acting largely out of power. And, um, I think this, I, you know, the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples would talk about the fact that there's there's such a worldview that says, if you are the majority world, you're the developing world. You're a primitive, air quotes, a primitive world. But that's only relative to what we have called mm -hmm. development. Hmm. And it's only relative right. to those who are setting the standard. Right. So... This idea, I think Jay is really profoundly talking to us about um, even if we come in with the best of in, like best of intentions to give power, that can be a form of denying the the agency, the ability for self-determination, the right of self-determination within the people who are there. Um, and that that Christ, again, what do you want me to do for you? First of all, Christ is assuming you have wants. Secondly, you can know them. Thirdly, you can ask for them, you know? And then there's times where, where Christ is like, don't wait for someone else to pick you up, lame man, and get you to the pool. You got to get to the pool. There can be a, we can propagate a real like learned helplessness. Like if, if, if the West is coming with all the solutions, it, it actually does a disservice mm -hmm. to the to the image of um, humanity that's in people. And I think that that Jay is really driving at like there is inherent in all people, not only a dignity, but an agency to choose a future, to imagine it, to design it, to to access it. And then I think, you know, Christopher, we've been talking about the kenosis of Christ, like the self-emptying. So Jay is really clear to say it's not about saying that no foreigner should be there, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? It, it's He's not just saying, oh, let's all just become isolationist mm -hmm. again. That really is the, you know, the way that it could go. And, and loads of people are just saying like, well, then I'll just back up. But isn't it curious that when we can't come in in the position of power, then we don't mm -hmm. want to be there? Oh, fascinating. What if... What if being there was in a position of emptiness and of um, as guests um, and as as learners? Richard Richard Twist talks about this too. That there is a role for us together. There, you know, we are meant to belong as the world together, not through a uniformity of doctrine, not through um, homogeneity or assimilation. Uh, but to be alongside one another. And if we're guests in a, in another country, then we should be saying, what do you know of this land? What do you, like, you tell us what you know of, of what's happening here. How, how will you raise funds? Will it look like funds? Will it be sharing chickens and eggs? You know, yeah. is that the way to help this project move forward? And um, yeah, that makes it complicated around like donation law and regulation in Canada, which we have a ton of them. <laughs> Um, but, 
that I think those are sobering questions for us to consider um, that we don't, I mean, this, we've been talking about this for a long time, Christ already at work in people, oh, yeah. Christ image already there and, and human dignity, human agency, self-determination already there. So we need to, we don't give any power, nothing. There's a phrase actually um, in many communities, like nothing for us without us. Um, and actually even the like, um, the, the question actually then becomes, what are we becoming together? As, I, as we join one another, do I know how I'm being saved by this endeavor <laughs> as much as I think this is about your salvation, right? What is it, um, what is it that, we, that we need together? It's a, like an expansion on Dallas Willard because he says it's, he defines spiritual formation. Like the, the, the central question around being formed into the image of Christ is who am I becoming? Because it is a, an ongoing process. Yeah. It's not a, yes. oh, like one and done, who did I become? It's who am I yeah. becoming? And right. so then to take it that's right larger to who are we, we as a community becoming. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And to live within the complexity of, of what they call our polycentric realities. We, we always want... We love the singular, man. We just love, you know, it's, it's easier to get our arms around. It's, but we don't, I think we don't feel as threatened by it. We feel like we can understand it more, but that's all about the, the rational human beings in terms of love have immense complexity and capacity. Like if we look at parents who have a first child and then a second child, who's wildly different. Now there's some parents for whom this, you know, because parents are working through their issues too, but often it means like, the love multiplies when you love that second child who's so different. There's a, a different <laughs> difference to them. And then a third and a fourth, right? Like we, we tend to think of love or even power as um, finite things and, and largely internal. Like we have to keep it for ourselves. And um, we, it's a zero sum economy. In order for me to get more, you have to get less. Um, and, and, you know, let's, that's like marketplace economy, basically, right? Is this, you know, you have to create demand. So again, we're applying an industrialist framework to spiritual realities. And when we're talking about love and power. Actually, what God is saying is it multiplies when it's shared. It's multiplied when it's held between people, mm -hmm. not only in people like that, that power itself is not just like me singular, I'm the boss or I'm the king or I'm the whatever, I'm the head, but that, that power and discernment and the capacity to say, we should go here, the capacity to say, this is what reality is. And here's how we want to move into the future. Um, that that gets held among people. It's, it's practiced in a circle uh, rather than in a triangle. I, I was wondering about this this morning, and I wonder if you could speak just a, a little bit about what do you think is the differences between and maybe the similarities to uh, of indigenization and decolonization? Uh, yeah, good one. I think indigenization and decolonization are referring to, <laughs> um, they are practiced by different groups of people. Okay. So in 
indigenization gets practiced by the local themselves. Um, and, uh, and it can include resisting colonization. Um, and, and there is a lot of internalized colonization. Um, much of the educational systems that are around the world are rooted in industrial practices. So even if you are in the majority world, you can still have a, a colonized mindset. So, but I would say that, um, the, the work of indigenization is by the people who are saying, this will be our land. This will be our people. We are, we are, I, I guess, a bit rooted here. Although there's, I just have to say, there's some complexity around diaspora realities mm-hmm. where it's not only about land, but the through line can be culture or language. Um, and you still, you indigenize the work. But it's, I would say, it's the people who um, speak the language and embody the culture they are the experts at indigenizing. Mm-hmm. They are the ones that need to have the agency and the self-determination to set course, to set the path. And it's not that they never ask for help or don't need any other tools or anything like that, but it's, it's saying they are the ones that tell us how the process of indigenization happens. So it's not only what happens, but how it happens. Cause there's no one indigenization right. process. Yeah. Even there's a set of values Um, but it's not even like step one, you know, it it doesn't exist like that. I think the work of decolonization uh, is largely incumbent on uh, those of us who are in westernized and industrialized countries and to understand that actually industrialism drove colonization. We where are we going to get the silk from? Where are we going to get more spices from? Where are we going to, let's talk about minerals in Africa and how that land, the land in Sierra Leone is rich with minerals, rich with minerals, but who owns that land and who is extracting all of the minerals from the land? So, um, you know, it's, it's multinational corporations. So I think the work of of decolonizing is to figure out what's the difference between me, Susanna, being a, a white person in Canada, which is true. I am, I am, my skin is white. And what comes with that whiteness is a certain set of privileges. Um, because I'm a woman, a woman in my forties, I don't have any facial piercings. I am generally treated with kindness and respect at the grocery store. I make eye contact with the, the person who's working the cash register. Um, so decolonizing would be to understand what is the land that I come from, not the color that I am and all the privilege that I have, but actually I have a culture. I am from a place. And so some of the work that I've done, it's, it's still barely there is to start to say like, Oh, I'm actually, I'm Dutch Canadian. So I, when I introduce myself, I'm trying to acknowledge I am from a place, my um, my parents, my Oma and Opa were from the Netherlands mm. and that comes with a certain culture. When I was in the Netherlands, I suddenly realized my foot size, which is like a size 10 <laughs> or 11, which here can sometimes you don't find right. the size yeah. 11 I, women. I know a thing or two in about that, honey. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Are oh my gosh. Me? Are you yes. with me? Are you with me? In the Netherlands, all of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't have to order something special online. All <laughs> the shoes are like size 10, 11, 12, because <laughs> The bodies of the people here are more similar to mm. my body. Like I came from a land and I came from a place. And so the, the, the point of 
of decolonizing is not to suddenly say everything Western is worthless and any, anyone, anyone white is now just a perpetrator of violence. I think it's to say, I'm going to start to, where do I come from? What is that story? Um, what is the, the land and the place that I have belonged to? Who are the people that I'm around? And then to start to interrogate the Western worldview and say, it is the worldview that I have. Here are some of the benefits of it. But there are other ways of understanding truth. There's other ways of pursuing growth. There's other ways of defining even what it means to be human and to be an adult. And I do not get to define that for somebody else. I, I am learning how to say what has, what has land meant to me, what has community meant to me. Um, and I, I, maybe that's the way of kind of navigating this idea of, of decolonizing. I know that people get really triggered by the word. I think it's honestly, it's because the conversations around critical race theory have gotten so heightened and protracted. Um, and there's a, a profound fear. And I would agree with the critique that it is, um, it is not helpful to just divide the world into heroes and victims. That's another form of dualism that I think is not mm -hmm. healthy. So I think there's the Solzhenitsyn, like the lines of sin runs through every human heart, mm -hmm. right? There is no human heart exempt from the capacity to damage the likeness of God in another person. Um, but then I think there's also ways in which all people have privilege and all people or all people have power. Because if we just say, oh, you're just a victim, that's what Matenga is saying. Like, oh, if you just come in and say like, oh, you're a victim, I'll be the hero. That's then saying you have no power. The truth is everyone has some form of power. Everyone has some form of marginalization. However, our systems, what I appreciate about critical race theory is that it says that our systems that are meant to be blind, like the legal system, blind to person are clearly not. They are clearly biased. They were clearly designed around a particular yes. person. Yep. Our education system, our legal system, many of the things that we call normal structures of society were actually designed with a specific person in mind, which tends to be the male Judeo-Christian straight white mm -hmm. person. Um, now, that person is equally deserving of having their dignity retained. We don't actually solve the problem by just like <laughs> trashing the enemy. That is the that is not the way of Christ. He will speak truth to power. He will overthrow the system itself. But he'll sit and talk with Nicodemus. You know, like if we if we're talking about like the person with all of the, the power, he'll sit and talk with him. So I think that's the work is to start to say, um, for me in Canada, to say, oh, all right, you our systems, though there's many things that I appreciate about the Canadian system. I love that we have public health care. I know that some people will be like, oh, socialist, <laughs> I, I'll take it. Um, I, you know, I just mm -hmm. I'm glad for that. I'm glad for a public health care system. But our healthcare system was also designed for a, a particular person. Our justice system was. Um, in the States, my understanding is that the percentages of Black men that are in, in prison are like Astronomical. astronomically greater mm -hmm. than another population. In Canada, it's Indigenous women. Mm -hmm. And we have to ask, 
Why is that when our prison systems do not reflect the gender and ethnic diversity of the country itself, there's got, we have to ask a deeper question about what is happening here. What is the bias in the system that, that makes it such? So um, I, you know, maybe the, the other thing is that instead of, I mean, there's been language about like becoming a, a culturally competent person. Um, the new language is like having cultural humility, which is to say, I don't know, which leads us back to what we were talking about, which is a curiosity. If we can think of decolonization as the opposite of curiosity. Colonization says, we know what's good for you and we will tell you what's good for you and we'll know it's good for you because it extracts the most value for us. Uh, the indigenous approach says, who is here? What is here? What is good? What grows in this season? That will shape our ethic. That is marked by love. Our uh, shape and ethic marked by the shalom of God, not the absence of difference, but the presence of belonging and right relationship. You know, people that can belong together who hold differences of opinion, differences of belief. Um, that's the those values of, of shalom of God, the, the love of God, then says, then how will we be? What's the story we will tell instead of like the five doctrines that we'll write? Uh, and you know what? Even that, I'm like, okay, sure. It's, it's actually helpful to write down a doctrine. It becomes problematic. It becomes problematic when the community that wrote the doctrines was located in Germany 500 yeah. years ago. <laughs> I, am, I am in like, the territory of the Haudenosaunee in, uh, you know, 2021. And so I can listen to that as a voice of wisdom. The problem is when it becomes the voice of universalist, uh, like, like universal. Yeah. Universal truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that's the, I think that's some of the, that's some of the work. So I actually, I really like the word decolonize because I think, the process of colonization was about ownership of body and of land. And uh, Christ is not about owning your body and owning your yeah. land. He is about ensuring that you have agency, that you have self-determination. Christ highly values the will. And it's instead of ownership, we're talking about stewardship. We're talking about guardianship, the care of. Oh, mm -hmm. oh,